Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Blessed Father, we do bow before you, and what a, what a nice thing for us to kind of contemplate on your goodness, because for sure and for certain, you are truly good. And the more we walk with you, the more we recognize your goodness actually far exceeds our vocabulary. We struggle with the words, Lord, but when we just come up alongside of you, we're bowled over by your goodness. God, fill this congregation this morning with your goodness by sending your spirit to each one of our hearts, the young and the old. I, play, I pray for my class this morning, sitting here. Uh, my students, they need to hear your voice as, many, as much as the, the old people have been in this church for a long time. And I pray, God, that you'll open up my, uh, my voice, um, my heart, my mind, so that what I actually deliver to the folks is accurate unto your word. And it'll have an effect that we would uh, not walk out of here as if we had just been going to a meal and the meal is poor. Fill us with your spirit, I pray thee. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Spiritual anxiety. If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you've experienced spiritual anxiety. All men experience anxiety. Not just those that are Christians, all men experience anxiety. But spiritual anxiety is of a different color, different flavor, different import upon the soul. And I want to address it by uh, looking at a very short parable, uh, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, that's what we're going uh, to, to be looking at. But Luke, uh, Luke uh, chapter 18 actually can't be explained properly without referring to what came before in chapter 17. In fact, I dare say if you actually tackle that particular parable without looking at chapter 17, you'd be lost. It'd be a misinterpretation altogether. And I can't believe how many messages I've heard over this parable. Somehow, some way, they have cranked that around and has totally distorted the message of this parable. So I want to help us out with that. I want us to see clearly what Jesus is doing here because you know what he's doing? This happens to be a love letter of encouragement to us as well as to his disciples. An absolute love letter. And hopefully I'll do a right proper job of uh, presenting that in in a good manner. First of all, if you have your Bibles open, we're not going to read the whole um, parable right now, but I want us to do this, and I want this to actually set real deep inside of your mind. And I'm going to read it, and he told them a parable. That's the disciples. It's not all the troops. 
This is the disciples. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Usually when you go through the parables, the punchline is at the bottom. Sometimes he has to come back around. He has to talk to the disciples because they're looking there and say, whoa, what was that all about? This one is right up front. It's hit you right, right here in the gut. He's addressing his disciples by what happened before in 17. But before I leave this, in the last part of this parable, in uh, verse 8b, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's very sobering. Already it's giving us a picture that he's talking about times that are very troublesome. Very troublesome. Well, as you know, that when Jesus came, he talked about the kingdom, the already, but he also talked about the not yet. And sometimes we have to be savvy to decipher which one he's talking about. But this is a subject about, first of all, the Pharisees' interpretation. They're uh, thinking concerning the kingdom of God. There the king was right in front of them, and they couldn't discern the king has come, the kingdom is here. And, and their quarry was, they're looking for signs and they're asking uh, Jesus, uh, what do we look for when the kingdom of God is going to arrive? They're looking for signs. At the end of 17, you'll see that the disciples also asked him a question. They didn't ask when the kingdom of God was coming. Where is it coming? And I'm not going to actually unpack all of 17. That would take an entirely different sermon, okay? But first of all, what I want us to do is think about that first verse in 18 and then the ending verse in 18 as I progress through reading 17. And I'm going to start with verse 22, although in 20 it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. That's very important for us to get that deeply ingrained in our mind. It's not about signs. And they're all about signs. We've got to see something. Then in 22, and you notice that he actually turns. It's like, okay, I've been dealing with the Pharisees, them throwing bricks at me about this kingdom issue. And he turns to his disciples and he says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop 
with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And I would unpack that where we're going to uh, turn our attention to the, um, the parable, the relationship to it. But I'm going to give a, a couple of uh, observations concerning what was just read. And the first thing that Jesus wants us to think about, contrary to what the Pharisees have been doing and looking for signs, he asked the disciples to think about several issues that were just unpacked by himself. And the first one he, he notes is that his coming is unmistakable. It's, it's not going to be something that people are scratching their head and saying, well, I, I wonder if this truly is the second coming. No. And we being in the 21st century, we're, we're trying to get our minds wrapped around, well, how does that happen? People in Australia, are they going to see it just like we're seeing it in Colorado? What is this about? Jesus is coming, and everybody is going to know that Jesus has arrived. Now, if you stumble over that, um, you're looking at the wrong thing. Christ is actually putting his finger on the fact that when he does come, there's not going to be any doubt whatsoever that the second coming has come. And that has to be something of an encouragement to people that are actually expecting that Jesus is going to come. There's not going to be any darkness. Okay, the people in the foreign land, they see Christ and we don't, so we're at a disadvantage. There's no disadvantage in that at all. Verse 24, it says that he is going to come in such a way that as far as the lightning from the east to the west, everybody's going to see it. Now, he's talking to the disciples. He's doing this for a specific reason. He wants to come out of the darkness. Certainly, the influence on those disciples at that time uh, must have been tremendous. So the possibility of being persuaded to believe a lie was right on their plate. Jesus is derailing, decoupling all of the things that could derail them. And I find it interesting that um, those people that are always up, they're searching for uh, the answers to eschatology when the, the coming of the Lord is, they miss the second point that Jesus actually brings to the fore. And the second point is, you know something? I told you that when I come, everybody's going to see me. But you need, you need to be paying attention to something that precedes your understanding of the second coming. And you know what it is? The cross. The cross itself. If we don't know what the cross means, if we have not gone to the cross, if we have not participated in the life and the death of Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, who cares whether there's a second coming? Because I'll tell you what, have, have you, if you've not done business with the cross, when his second coming comes, it's not going to be a good day. You won't want it. You will not want it. 
<clears throat> Many in his day, I think that they uh, viewed the cross even after Jesus' death and resurrection with sheer indifference. They could care less. Their hearts had not been changed. They didn't do right by actually seeing what was transpiring right in front of them. But the next thing that you, you recognize in the flow of 17 is his admonition to be ready. Now, this is 2,000 years ago. This is at the beginning. This was way back when things were starting to unravel. And Jesus is admonishing his disciples, be ready. Okay? And he gives a couple of examples. Noah certainly is an example for us all the way at the, at the front end of our Bibles. Noah is, is characterized by eating and drinking, solid indifference. They could care less about God. And as we go through the parable, you'll see the connection there. Then there was sudden destruction. It came upon them, and it was, it was there, and it was done. There's no possibility of recovery. And the second example is Lot. But the attention on Lot is very interesting. Um, we don't know an awful lot about Lot, a lot, but he is characterized as being a godly man. Um, but his wife, who was supposed to follow him, was actually attracted to what she was leaving, and she had to turn back, and you know she turned to a pillar of salt. The example is, here is for all of us. Those who would, uh, want to save their life, they need to lose their life. So actually the message there is, um, if you're not ready for Christ's second coming, if the things of this world are more important to you than Christ. I think for Christians, a lot of times, we, we get in our mind, yeah, I'm there. Uh, Christ is the head of my priorities. My heart is after Christ. But then when things start to be pulled away from you, are you actually in love with Christ more than the things that are being taken away from you? And let's face it, a lot of times you can travel this earth a long time before that hits you full in the face about how much you love things. But if you belong to God, God truly will. He will address that someday, some way. He will ask you, which do you love the most? Your things? Even people around you, do you love them more than me? And he will address that. He'll talk to you. He'll touch you on the shoulder. I want to know who your true allegiance is. Certainly with Lot's wife, she demonstrated her, where her true allegiance was. That which was familiar to her, comfortable to her, her house, whatever it was, that's what she wanted to do. Plus, the curiosity as to, is God's punishment actually going to rain down on Sodom? Is this true? Instead of taking God at his word, he turned away. So whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, you've got to think about the audience in front of Jesus when he's saying these things, because already we have... We have noted that this is dealing with not only the, the now of the kingdom, but he is going to address the not yet of the kingdom to these disciples. But to these disciples, guess what they were facing in a matter of days? They had been following along, listening to Jesus, 
Actually, their hearts probably were pounding for his authority, his good counsel, his good advice, etc. Some of them were actually embracing the fact that Jesus is the true Messiah. For him to be crucified, and he had, they had been warned that he had to die. He was going to be raised on the third day. But they had been warned over this. And what happened to the disciples? Most of them scattered, didn't they? That was so earth-shattering to them. It just grabbed them that this, this is an impossible thing for our Lord to be crucified. And they booked. They took off. So when he's talking about spiritual anxiety, these disciples have a front row seat as to what that looks like. But it wasn't just after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they faced anxiety. Their lives were filled with spiritual anxiety as they traveled this earth because of the plagues of Satan and all the people around them that hated Christ and his message. So certainly that was as much of a relevant subject for them as it is today. These people were suffering. They had a temptation right in front of them to give it all up. It's too hard. It's too much. Too much. You know something? Uh, a lot of times when that happens, you know, when um, they, they notice the crucifixion, they notice the destruction of the temple, all the things that were familiar to them are just evaporating. And they have no foundation. They have no place to go. There is a temptation to actually give up. And the giving up, the last bit of giving up is absolute, absolute indifference. You just give up praying and you say, whatever it is, I don't care. You're numb. And actually there's a characterization of that in a church that Jesus speaks about in Revelation. And it's spooky. It's, it's terrible. He's talking about a specific church. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth. You're just pew warmers. That's all you do. You come in and you just sit and your heart is just flat out cold. Absolute indifference. And actually that is the bottom rung. When you get there where your prayer life is zero. You're not moving. In my vernacular, you're a flatliner. There's not a bleep on the screen. There's nothing there. Do you know what Jesus is doing? In this parable, just what I read, you need to be praying that you don't lose heart. He already knows that we're in this, and it's a rough, hard ride. Pray. Well, the core of the parable. I'm going to read this and then we're going to make some comments concerning this. So back to 18 and I'm going to start with verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? 
Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Very short, concise, tightly packed in there. And I don't care. There's so many pastors. They go over that haranguing of the widow as the main core of the message. It's not. That is not the main core of this message. Now, I want to point out to us in this particular section of Scripture, it's actually different than what we just read in 17. In this section of Scripture, it it calls for contrast. In the other passage that we read in 17 is a comparison. Okay, And there's a difference between contrast and comparison. The contrast, the emphasis, is on the dissimilarities. Okay, On the comparison, it's, it's actually bringing to the fore, emphasizing the, uh, the similarities. And you will read back over that and you can see, okay, there's going to be a similarity of those things happening prior to Christ returning, even as the days of Noah, even as the days of Lot. But if we don't actually sit down and meditate on this for a second, we actually misinterpret the story of the judge himself. Listen to how he's characterized. The judge is characterized by this. He does not fear God. He does not respect people. You know what that sounds like to me? He's indifferent. Just what I've been describing. Now, for the Jewish audience that was sitting there, and I don't know how many people were gathered around him, but certainly as the disciples were listening to this, they probably said, whoa, what are you, who are you describing there? A judge in Israel that has, he could care less about God? He doesn't like people? Now, if you've been traveling through the Old Testament and Second Kings, you would know that there are a lot of different individuals, but Jeho- Jehoshaphat in particular that when he was trying to clean house and get everybody's ducks back together, one of his intention was to clean up that issue in Israel about the judges. And he says this, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. He's talking to judges. Be careful what you do, for the... There is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. He's rebuking them. He's cautioning them. He's reminding them of their position for a holy God. So this judge that is presented, he's anything but that description of someone as mindful of God. And so right away, we're doing a contrast between uh, God and this judge. Now, sometimes in contrast, we kind of lose it. It gets kind of fuzzy or, or hazy. I was actually tempted to do something to actually hold up two placards, one black and one white. But you know something in doing something? Even that is a misrepresentation of the contrast between a holy God who is absolutely just and this judge that's absolutely corrupt. It's almost as though we can't describe it. There's such a separation. And unfortunately, a lot of times, our concept of God blends the two. We start thinking in terms, well, 
God is kind of like this. No, he's not. No, he's not. No, he is not. God is absolutely just. There's no shadow of turning with God whatsoever. There's no spot of darkness in God whatsoever. So what Christ is bringing to his disciples, you know what he's doing? He's looking him in the eye and he says, you know something? I'm going to give you a message of hope. And the way I'm going to unpack this is, I want you to wrap your minds around your concept of God. Don't be fudging on me. Don't be thinking in terms that God is like man. Don't even do it. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so is God in his intentions. And so we should not do that. And then the second picture that he gives us, like the judge, this is not a comparison, this is a contrast. And he starts talking about a widow. Well, we notice something about a widow, first of all. In that day and time, culturally, they were the lowest of the lows. A widow. Women were sub, but a widow, that is bad news bears in that culture. Why is it like that? Why is it so down? I mean, we're capturing something that's so so low. Because they didn't have any resources, okay? They didn't have their own money. They had to depend on someone else to feed them, etc. They couldn't go out and get the job, all those kinds of things. But they didn't have any voice. I think this is probably the one thing that Christ is actually capturing for us as he pulls this into our situation. The widows of that day didn't have a voice. Now, it's interesting to me, even as I was going through this, thinking about the change over the centuries women scream and yell and yak and whack and all this kind of things. Oh, woe is me. But in today's culture, women are far different than what they were of yesterday's culture. They got a voice, okay? And they have resources. And it's not to say they got a life that's perfect. I'll guarantee you that. But it's interesting to me that a lot of times, we as a people, not just women, But we as a people, we overlook the things that are a blessing of our own day. We overlook them and say, why do we do that? This is a very different time that we live in. And you know something? God's tender mercy, his grace has brought us into a situation where things aren't as bad as they used to be on one level. On one level. You know what? God always had a tender spot for widows. And he says in Psalm 68.5, He is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. Is God in his holy habitation. And that's what he is. As he rules and reigns in heaven, he notices all those that are disadvantaged. He's always got a soft spot for those that are disadvantaged and below the belt. They're down there on the bottom. But he does not want us to be focusing on that issue at this particular time. But before I get into what his focus is actually uh, showing forth, I want to talk about the remedy in this particular parable. And the remedy for this particular widow was constant haranguing. This, this woman was not going to give up. Okay, Persistent without break. But 
as you read this, it's not about revenge, it's about justice. And I was thinking to myself, even as I uh, labeled this message, uh, uh, I was thinking perhaps instead of spiritual anxiety, it should be something like uh, frustration of no justice, justice declined, justice yearned for, with the emphasis on the fact that justice has always been on the plate for people that are disadvantaged. They want justice. They want a good ruling. They want something that is actually going to be fair and equitable. And certainly this widow is demonstrating she's coming time and time again just to get justice, not revenge. And I thought to myself how relevant this is to today's actually time period, even within the last year. The lack of justice and the absolute frustration that it seems like those doors of justice have been closed. You can knock on the Supreme Court all you want to. Those doors are not going to open. All the little minor courts, they're saying, forget it. Don't even want to hear about it. We don't even want to hear about it. So we as a people, as Christians, when we hear all of this stuff just kind of floating on top of us, all the inequities, all the evil that's been pouring out day after day, isn't there a heartbeat that says, can't there be any justice here? God in heaven, will you give us justice in America? That's a frustration that's actually going to increase, not decrease, as time goes by. Certainly with the disciples, as you envision their life, as they were actually walking this earth and actually professing Jesus Christ in the face of the enemy, they were brutalized. They were put in prison. They were harassed. Their names were stripped from them. They had every kind of, uh, every kind of difficulty where they walked. And certainly within their heart, they were speaking, they were yelling for, where is justice? This parable is pushing it right in our face that you know something, God is actually, he is interested in justice, but a lot of times we're not going to find it and there's a reason why we don't find justice. I just want to make this one point clear. This, this particular parable concerning the widow, the focal point of the parable is not about praying in this fashion to God. <clears throat> Judge's response. Okay, she's harangued him. She's given him a black eye. In fact, um, the inclination is that her constant knocking on the door, not about reputation so much, but, you know, it was just wearing him down to the point that he breaks to the pressure. And he does grant her the request that she was after. And it's interesting to me that she didn't, he didn't just put her in jail or whatever they do back in those days. But he just gave up. And he gave her what she asked for because he couldn't stand it anymore. He needed peace of mind more than anything else. So she will not beat me down. I'll just give her what she needs. That's the parable. It's very small, compact. And you have to sit back and think to yourself, okay, Jesus... I think your message was steered and directed towards the disciples to encourage them. And you have to ask yourself, am I going to get encouraged over that message? Well, if you dig down a little bit deeper, or if you actually hear what Jesus is speaking, 
It's actually very, very encouraging. Because he turns to the disciples, he speaks to them very plainly, very, very forcefully. Will not God give justice to his elect? It's as though he's taking their heads and saying, come here, you're looking in the wrong direction. Look at God. And then I want you to do something maybe you're not used to doing. Who are you? You're not the widow. You are not the widow. God is not the judge. So what does that mean you are? And he uses the term elect. And I know as soon as you throw out the word elect, people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that subject. Forget, forget that, okay, for a second. I want us to zero in on what I call the placeholder, the person that actually... He, he's uh, standing in a place of special relationship to God. The first picture that Jesus gives us there is what I call earth dwellers. They're the people that actually carry on their lifestyle, whatever it is they're doing, without God. Okay? Even when you talk about the disadvantaged of the widow, they're still earth dwellers. They're people that are actually confronting the difficulties of the day in a totally different relationship. They don't care about God. Even this widow, this widow, there's no inclination there, no indication that she cares about God. She wants justice. She's not crying out to God. She's crying out for justice for and with an evil judge. So what Jesus is doing, he says, the first thing you need to remember when that anxiety is just stirring and you're gripping your heart is you need to focus on the fact God is not like man. Okay? That is not a comparison. That's a contrast. It's huge. It's black and white. And the second thing is, I want to remind all of you that actually belong to me of your heritage. You know, before the earth was created, do you know something? I loved you. I loved you. Do you know I called you to myself? And when I called you to myself, I adopted you as my own. And as my own, do you know something that we have together? I love you. You love me. What a relationship. This is incredible. You that have children, you know this for sure and for certain. You love your children, and when they bring requests, whatever it is, and they love you, hopefully, hope your children do. But when you do that, there's a special relationship there that is dissimilar than having uh, Joe Palukovich on the street come and ask you something. It's, it's different. Because of that relationship. And Jesus is doing that. He's putting it right in your face. Think about your relationship with me. Because you know what I'm doing right now? I am actually preparing you for what's in front of you. All the disturbances that are going to come your way, they're going to hit you like a tsunami. They're just going to overwhelm you. You need to remember who God is. You need to remember who you are in relationship to God. I fear a lot of times people's Christians' feet are on shifting sand there. Either they start 
imagining a God that's not God, or maybe they don't know the, the full impact, the ramifications of the identity of God. And that'll give you the shifting sand. Or they, they uh, go back and forth about the relationship. They're actually their union with God himself. Yes, I am a Christian, but... And that causes that shifting in the sand. So he says, <clears throat> your God is not like the unjust judge. When the elect pray for justice, does God hear? That's a question that you have to ask yourself. When we're praying for justice, even in the United States, for this particular situation we're confronting right now, does God even hear? But you know something? If, he, if we think that God does not hear and he's not paying attention, we actually do something that's very similar that happened on top of Mount Carmel, isn't it? A wavering. An absolute wavering. When we bring God down to the unjust judge, what does that do? We accuse him, him of not even seeing or caring. It was interesting to me, to me when Elijah was up on top of that mountain. He was yelling and screaming at the prophets of Baal. Well, where is your God? Is he in the bathroom? Is he on vacation? What's going on with God? Your God. Now, I, suspect, I suspect a lot of times people in their prayer life are thinking in terms of, you know something? God is an absentee God. That is the wrong way to conceive of him. <clears throat> when actually helplessness grips us in the time of trouble, when spiritual anxiety actually rises to the point where we're breathless, Actually, our prayers are so, uh, they're, they're almost to nothing. Remember, God is more willing to hear your prayer than you are to pray to him. And I'm going to take a little break here because I know when we go back to this issue of that widow haranguing the judge and she's beating on the door all the time, we can misinterpret that I know how I'm going to get God's attention. When everything is caving in, uh, this example that has been given in chapter 18 is a perfect example of me yelling and screaming at God day in and day out. I'll get up in the morning, and for that re- one request that I'm having, I'm going to just scream my, my lungs out at God. Okay, and So I want to ask a few questions here. If that's your attitude, if that's what you take away from this, do we repeat, do we repeat a request because we think that the quality of the prayer is dependent on the quantity of words. Listen to prayers sometime. Wow. Man, they fill up a whole... I mean, they've got words all over the place. And they're all... They're flowery. they got some flowery words. We're going to impress God. Whoa, we're going to impress God. And I know if I impress God with all these words, I know he's going to answer me. I just know it. Do we repeat a request because we think that God is ignorant and needs to be informed? Or if not ignorant, at least he is unconcerned and therefore needs to be aroused. What a low view of God. Do we repeat our prayers because we believe that God is unwilling to answer and we must prevail upon him, somehow transforming a hard-hearted God into a compassionate and loving one? Well, I... I probably shouldn't make this comment, but there's an awful lot of people pray pray like that. 
is that they're going to bend God's will to our will. If I can just get him to love me a little bit more, if I can just get him to actually see what I'm going through, I know he's going to change his mind. Do we repeat a petition because we think that God will be swayed in his decision by our putting on a show of zeal and piety as if God cannot see through the thin veil of hypocrisy? I just wanted to make those comments, but in view of those comments, this is not one of those things that says, all right, just pray at once and be done with it. That would be the wrong message as well. Because you know something? God really does watch to see if you're intent on your request. If it's so cheap and so flippant that you just call out to God for five seconds, how sincere are you? And he's not looking for you to have a formula in prayer. He's looking for you to have a heart in prayer. There are things that really do affect our lives that God is not going to smack us on the side of the head when we go to the throne room of grace over and over again and plead with God. Hannah is an, ex- uh, is an example of that. Jesus himself is an example of that. Paul is an example of that. Three times he said, man, this thing is hurting me. God, would you do something here? So he didn't do it just one time and then walk out the door. So it's not against the repetition. It's about this thing right here, the heart. What is driving that prayer? Is it sincerity? Is it something that you're going to God and say, God, this, listen, I'm leaning on you. I have to have some help here. And certainly in this day and age, isn't it true that since the beginning of last year, there's trouble in Dodge City and our hearts should be pumping for justice. Should be. It should be pumping for justice. Our prayers should be just at the throne, throne room of grace. God, would you please help us? You know something? There was a day way, way, way back there that these poor people in Israel, they were crying out to God day and night. Because of those cries, God moved through Moses to deliver those folks. Now, he was going to do it, but do you know what he was doing? He was building those people of Israel into his scheme or his thing that he was going to do, his storyline, by praying. We look way down our nose at prayer and the efficacy of it. But God, is that he uses that as a means of grace to accomplish that which his purpose has already said. This is what's going to happen, but you know it's not going to happen until you start praying. Until you start praying. you belong to God you're elect, you're set apart you're adopted you're a son, you're purchased with a price you have a different standing from the widow God is our resource, the widow didn't have that resource she didn't even have the inclination to go before God to do this, that we know of. And this is specifically pointed towards the contrast between the earth dwellers that actually live in an existence, however high or low it is, that's so different than the people of God's kingdom. So different than those people. Well, God is our resource. Prayer is our voice. And the body of Christ is our influence. 
The body of Christ is our influence. When we're connected to the church in the right manner, in the right way, doing the right things, when we're discerning the body properly, guess what that has? That has a huge influence on the world. That's on us. God has set it up. He's actually put this whole thing together. And when we go and complain and kick the can down the road because things are not as we think they should be, a lot of times we need to look in the mirror. Are we being faithful what God, what God has given to us? Or are we just indifferent about it? Let it just roll. Let it roll. Indifference. <clears throat> Well, the third thing, but I think Christ is bringing to our understanding concerning the encouragement, uh, our place before God. We need to hear God. We need to see who God is. We need to understand who we are in relationship to God. But you know what he says? I'm coming back. This is built into this word in 70. I'm coming back. It's not going to be someone else. I'm not sending some uh, king or president or whatever it is to right the wrongs that are in the land. Nope. When I come back, justice is going to reign. Justice is going to reign. I don't know if that grips you, but that really encourages me. In fact, I like to pray daily, would you come back today? Would you come back within the hour? Would you please come back, Lord, because this is a sewer that we live in. Would you please come back? But he also says, and he he qualifies it, he says, I'm coming back speedily. This is 2,000 years ago. These disciples are looking at the end of their life and says, whoops, we didn't see it. What's going on here? You said you're going to come back speedily. All right, 2,000 years later, 2,000 plus years later, Christians in every church are doing the same thing. Said, I read in your, your word here that you're going to come back quick. I'm getting tired. I'm getting old. I don't think you're coming back. I just don't think you're coming back. Uh, 2 Peter says the same, he predicts that same characterization. There's going to be scoffers in the land. Well, I'm looking around and things are the, exactly the same thing. What's this business about you coming back speedily? And God reminds us even in that text that one day is a, th- is a thousand. So as we count time, it's different than how God counts time. So sit down and be quiet. God is moving quickly. He's moving and he's going to move at his time. And in his calculation, He's doing it speedily. But you know something? There's something that Christians do not want to hear when I go next in this. They don't want to hear our participation in what God is going, when he's going to come, how he's going to come. Do you know what it is? It's prayer. Thank you very much. It's prayer. You people praying, God, come back. Jesus, come back. Man, we put that so far off. We just shove it away and say, yeah, you're going to come back. And then we leave it at that. Our nightly, our daily prayers are not Jesus return, come back. The Israelites did that. They poured their heart out. People that actually understand that the uh, mechanisms of prayer and the union between ourselves and God, they will understand 
the importance. Now, it's not the prayer itself. It's how God actually excites us by the Spirit to do the praying that's necessary for that which is going to transpire. Speedily, Christ is going, and that should be a, an absolute motivator for us to be praying for Jesus' return. And it should be an encouragement to us that, first of all, we have that voice unlike the widow's voice. She didn't have the voice of prayer. Jesus' first coming bears injustice, what we deserve. Did you know that? That's what he did. He, on that cross, he bore what we deserved. That was the picture. But Jesus' second coming brings justice so that we will have blessings that we don't deserve. We don't deserve them. We don't deserve heaven. None of us. But his second coming, that's what he's securing. That's his weight of justice being displayed for each one of us. He took it on. He is justice. Christ is justice. Well, that cautionary note at the end of it, will he find a faith on the earth as he comes back? He's asking people. He's actually a shot across the bow. He's saying, I want you guys to be very open-eyed as you go through life. I want you to be ready. When I think about the, the usual lifestyle of the American Christian, you got to yawn. There's a lot of couch potatoes. Are they ready? I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. Are they sincerely praying? Are they sincerely eagerly coming to the services to actually listen to God's voice, to direct them, counsel them, prepare them? Now, this is a broad, general statement. Don't get me wrong here. You, you folks are just a, a blessed relief to my eyes, truly. But there's a, a lot of folks out there It's just an entertainment center. It's just something that you just go through the motions and it's a buddy-buddy circle. But it has nothing to do with drawing close to the living Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I want you to be ready. <clears throat> Not by looking for signs. Okay? Praying and trusting. 